And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it's another week getting underway. That's right. It's Monday, worst day of the week. See, we have, to, we have to build you up until Thursday, which is the second best day of the week, right? So we, we've got to get through hump day that's coming up on, you know, Wednesday. So It's all about managing expectations. Exactly. So today's yeah. Monday, worst day of the week. There we go. So it's <laughs> pretty easy. Um, speaking of that, of course, our newsletter is out. And uh, this past weekend's newsletter was kind of just covering uh, various tidbits of data that had come out over the last week. Of course, um, when we talk about the markets last week, really didn't go much of anywhere. Actually, believe it or not, markets actually finished down just a smidge last week. But um, markets had sold off pretty sharply on Wednesday and Thursday of last week, as you know, kind of you know, concerns about the Fed, inflation, and you know, had several uh, Fed members, James Bullard, Loretta Meister had come out talking about Fed needs to hike rates above 5%. Well, the problem is right now is that the Fed's expectations are five, five and a quarter percent, but the treasury market is currently saying, no, 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 you're about 4.6, 4.7. So, you know, there's a, there's about a 71 basis point gap right now between what the Fed thinks are going to hike rates to versus what the market says they're going to likely hike rates to. Uh, we'll see how that works out. But so markets did had, had gotten about the 200 day moving average. Of course, that was very positive. That happened on Monday and Tuesday. Markets were up there. And then on, on uh, Wednesday, markets sold off pretty sharply. And we came down and retested, broke through the 50 day moving average, came down, retested that 20 day, 100 day moving average crossover. Now, I know it's a bunch of technical stuff this early in the morning. Just bear with me for a moment. These are just support levels for the markets. And we came down and, and tested those levels. And then Friday, very nice bounce off that level uh, to retest the 200-day moving average. And that's where we're going to open up this morning. Now, this morning, futures are flat. Uh, basically, S&P is down about two and three quarters points right now. Uh, the Dow's up one. So pretty much futures are flat, really just a very muted open this morning. The focus, of course, continuing. We, we've, we're not into the bulk of earnings releases yet. Those are coming up starting really later this week and next week. We're going to have just huge chunks of earnings data coming out this week. We've got Microsoft. We'll be paying attention to what they're doing, of course. Uh, their latest um, kind of news is they're looking to make a $10 billion investment into chat GPT, which is that AI interface that uh, Elon Musk actually was investing in very early on getting it started because that's the thing that everybody's talking about lately because basically it does all the work for you. you simply say, hey, write me a Taylor Swift song about the stock market. And actually, somebody did this and... <laughs> And it's actually not bad, but you can ask anything you want, and in about three seconds, it'll it'll produce it. So you know, it's it's pretty amazing technology. Of course, it's a it's a big threat for companies like Google, example uh, as an example, which you use the Google search engine right now to find something, and it gives you a bunch of links that are, of course, the tops are paid links. That's how they make their money. Chat GPT just gives you the answer; it doesn't give you links. So of course, schools are trying to figure out. <laughs> how to do this because, you know, my son, who's, you know, kind of the, you know, always trying to figure the easy way around things, you know, gets an essay at school and he goes to chat GPT and says, write me an essay on 
the intersection of, um, you know, some historical technology and, and what's going on right now. And three seconds, it produces the article. Play, plagiarism free. So it, it's I, pretty I incredible. heard over the weekend that some teachers are actually forbidding students in literature classes or writing classes yep. to use laptops. Instead, they're having to write their papers in longhand. You know what? And it's not a bad idea, yeah. except, you know, even today, though, a lot of these kids are still going to school online. So my both my kids in college still have some online classes. Uh -huh. So kind of hard to get around yeah. that. So. But it's pretty. But Microsoft making a ten billion dollar investment to this, and they see the future of it, right? So you know, Bing, which is their their internet search engine, right, has has has, has got traction, right? It does okay, but it's nowhere near the dominance of Google. And of course, this is a ten billion dollar investment to maybe change things up for Bing. Bing might become Bingo for Microsoft. Well. We'll see. Anyway, their earnings coming up this week. I'm sure we'll hear some more about this. But anyway, markets rallied nicely here. Now, technically, uh, as we've been talking about here just recently, you know, things are improving. Uh, technically, look, I know there's a lot of bearish sentiment out there right now, and, and there's a lot of talk about uh, a recession and, you know, all these things have to happen. Um, and nothing's good, right? And, you know, lots of emails from people that, you know, it's like, I got all my money into gold bullion because the world's coming to an end. Be careful with that. As we've talked about before, the market is actually doing some very bullish constructive action. First of all, the number of stocks trading above their 200-week moving average starting to look a whole lot better, actually getting very much back into bullish territory. Uh, the market continues to build this, this very nice rising trend of lower prices. Bottom here, bottom back here in, in December, maybe have formed another bottom here at a higher low again just this last week. So if the market can break out over the next day or two above the 200-day moving average, we'll have another uh, a bottom set at a higher level. At the same time, this downtrend line that continues to provide very, very you know, tough resistance. And this is where all year long last year, markets continued to fail. Every time we'd rally to this downtrend, right around the 200-day moving average, markets had failed, right? And then we had big sell-offs. Now, markets are, once again, struggling to get above that. Whether they will or not is going to be the big question, of course. The, the determinant of all this right now is going to be the Fed, which is and the next week or so, we're going to have the meeting from the Fed talking about their next rate hike. They're going to hike rates by 25 basis points, right? That's pretty much already understood at this point. What is going to be the driving determinant for the bulls or the bears, right, is what the Fed says. Now, the Fed doesn't like higher asset prices. We've talked about before that eases monetary conditions. Those financial conditions is what they want to have tighter to slow inflationary pressures and to ensure that inflation doesn't come roaring back now that it's starting to come down a bit. So they're concerned about easing financial conditions, and that's what higher stock prices provide or easier financial conditions. The next meeting, will they come out and say, hey, you know what? We're going to be, we're going to remain focused on inflation. Are they going to try to talk the markets back down again? That's going to be the real determinant here. Of course, what's going to, what's going to matter for the markets near term? of course, is this very tight consolidation pattern that we're now getting between this lower trend line coming from the January 2022 highs and this rising bottoms uh, that we've been setting here since October. That's been compressing prices. So very much will be determined by the first week or so of February 
after that Fed meeting, how the market takes it. Do we break out to the upside and make a move higher, or does the, does the Fed talk the markets back down again? As we saw back in August, back in October, back in December, uh, Fed coming out not being very bullish in their stance, saying, hey, inflation's our bigger problem, and we want a control. Really, what they've been focusing on is a control burn of asset prices, trying to bring down that consumer confidence, slow demand in the economy. But the question is, is are they going to get their wish? That's going to be, that's going to be the, real, the real big question. Now, when we come back from the break, you know, part of this is part of this outcome for equities over the course of this year is going to be determined by recession. A lot of people think we're going to have a recession, but is there a risk that maybe we don't? The NABE survey came out yesterday. I'll tell you some very interesting things that were in that report. Don't go away. Coming right back here on The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. Get this. Also, our separate channel, also for the Before the Bell, which is our three-minute video. Make sure you subscribe to both channels so that we can get those updates to you every single day that we put them out. Of course, that's all in our YouTube channels. And you can find them both at our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Housekeeping. Getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task. Our next Candid Coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk. Saturday, January 28th with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The financial housekeeping Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning, of course. You know, lots of conversation, emails, uh, etc. You know, talking about... You know, the outlook for the year, of course, and, you know, it's it's very easy right now, as we've talked about before, to have a very negative view about the economy this year, right? Interest rates are going up and, you know, we've got inflation and all these type of things. And it's very easy to have this very negative, bearish view on the economy and, and the financial markets and et cetera. So I'm getting lots of emails right now, of course, you know, from people it's like, you know, I'm putting all my money into gold because the dollar is going to go to zero and, you know, all these things. And that's fine. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, the risk, as we talk about, is always making, you know, one-sided bets based on expectations. And, you know, it was very, very interesting. Just as an example, there was a, I was driving in this morning and they were talking about that there's been a very rapid increase in recent years among middle-aged individuals committing suicide. And there is a linkage between that and going to church. Now, you go, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when you have nothing to believe in, right, then there doesn't really seem to be an out. 
right? So if you have no faith, right, there's no out. So when things get really bad, there you don't have anything to turn to to say, you know, help me through this period of time and give me hope, right? And it's the same thing that, and, and not to that degree, and that I simply use that as an example because it was on the news this morning, um, but it's kind of the same thing that occurs in the financial markets, right? We get so wrapped up into this negative view of things, right? There's no hope. Things are going to be terrible. The world's going to end. The dollar's going to zero. I better have my gold, my gun, and my beanie weenies because there is no hope, right? And it's kind of the same idea, right? We don't have any faith in anything. So when we have this very one-sided view, we tend to make bets on things that turn out to not really work out in our favor. You know, there's an old saying that more money has been lost trying to avoid the bear market and actually being in the bear market. And we've written some articles about this in the past. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and just buy everything and throw all your money back to the stock market. I'm not saying just be, you know, at the same time of, you know, expecting the worst possible outcome, don't, don't go out and, and just throw everything in. The point is, is that the worst outcomes generally never happen. And it's easy to get into that position to where we only expect the worst possible outcome, right? And look, there, I'm not debating you know, the issue at all right now that things look pretty dire, right? I mean, if we take a look at the economic data, it doesn't look great. And CEO confidence is at record lows, and the National Federation of Independent Business, their data is at lows, highest in manufacturing, you know, all these type of things certainly show a very weak outcome, inverted yield curves. I mean, we can go right down the list. There's plenty of negative economic and financial data out there to suggest that we're going to be in a fairly decent recession at some point this year. I'm not arguing the point that we won't. I'm not saying that we're not, right? What I am suggesting is that maybe things aren't as bad as some of the media, more bearish media headlines and commentary make it out to be. Things that, you know, again, when you have no faith or hope, there only is the darkness, right? And this is why faith is an important part of life. It gives you hope, right? There's the hope that things get better. you got to have that hope. Otherwise, there's no point in living. And this is the thing that we easily get ourselves into when it comes to the financial markets as well, is that we kind of just lose all hope. And we just, you know, get ourselves into a position mentally that there is no positive outcome potential. And so then we start making investment decisions that turn out to work against us down the road. Now, it doesn't mean that the road isn't bumpy between here and there. But, you know, investing is basically partly based on faith and hope. Because you've got to have some, to make money, you've got to be optimistic that things are going to improve. Because what's the basic rule of investing? Buy low, sell high. Well, if I'm buying low, that means I'm buying at a time that nobody else wants to own anything. That's why it's low. And if I'm buying something low, that means I've got faith and hope that things are going to improve at some point. 
if I wait for those things to clearly show themselves, it's too late. I've missed the opportunity. And so this is kind of where we are. Lots of views out there right now that the worst possible outcome is the most probable outcome. And maybe that's the case. But generally, those things don't happen. The worst possible outcomes. Sometimes it doesn't mean they can't be, you know, we can't have poor outcomes. I'm not saying that at all. You know, are we going to have a recession? Probably. Right. I mean, there's all the all the evidence is there that we will probably have a recession. Now, can we avoid a recession entirely? Possibly. Probably not. But it's also not going to be the Great Depression. Most likely. Unless we have some type of major credit event. (coughs) And that's certainly a possibility. It's not a probability right now, but it is a possibility. And so this is, this is the thing to be thinking about, right? How do I position my portfolio to have some hope and optimism but not put myself at a huge degree of risk? And that's where, you know, Mike and I and last week and Danny and I were talking about, you know, sector rotations and looking at, you know, different, different areas of the market's valuations and dividends. We've been writing a lot of articles lately about, you know, high you know value and high dividend yielding stocks those type of things those are opportunities that can also provide you some shelter in case well or when the storm comes recent survey of the national association of business economics approximately 53 percent of those polled said they had a more-than-even expectation. So that's more than half, right? So what are the odds of a recession? (laughs) 50-50. They had more than an even expectation that the U.S. would be in a recession over the next 12 months. 3% indicated they thought the country was already in one. So very low number of people saying, hey, we're in a recession on the business side of the ledger, right? These are the people in the business. Only... Slightly more than half of them said we'd be into a recession later this year. Now, now in, in their previous poll that they released back in October, this is a, a quarterly poll, by the way, 64% of respondents indicated that the economy was either in or would be in a recession in the next 12 months. So their, their expectations now are improving that maybe with inflation coming down and with business activity stabilizing, that maybe part of the storm is over. Doesn't mean we're out of it yet, right? Just not as bad as what we were originally expecting. A total of the 60 members who work for the private sector's firms or industry trade associations responded to the latest survey, which was conducted at the beginning of January. The poll showed respondents expected inflation to ease, within their companies and industries with a forward-looking gauge for prices charged by falling 10 percentage points to the latest survey. And that's the, that's the lowest reading since October. So that's a forward gauge for prices, saying the prices are going to come down. Less inflation. Now, there's, a, there's an issue with that now um, that we have to factor into the markets. Now, there's a couple of things happening with the financial markets that we have to take into account. First of all, the recession, right? So do we have one? How bad is it? That's going to be the real question. Probably not as bad as everybody expects, but we'll probably have a recession. So that's one factor. 
And that's certainly going to impede demand. As demand slows in the recession, that means earnings come down. But earnings have already fallen. So the question now has become, you know, have the decline in earnings so far and the decline in prices, has that started to price in some of the risk of recession? That answer is probably yes. Profit margins are a bit of a different story. Profit margins are still near record highs. If inflation is falling, that means I'm charging less for prices. And given that wages have come up and employment is now back towards full employment levels, that means profit margins will be less. So profit margins still have to come down. So does that mean that stock prices have to correct a tremendous amount more? Not necessarily. But it also means that the upside to stocks may be fairly limited over the next several years as profit margins contract. So it doesn't necessarily mean, so again, this goes back to, to the issue, maybe what the stock market is trying to tell us with improving technical foundations like we were talking about in the first segment is that maybe the worst of expectations are behind us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're next into the next great surging bull market like we saw in 2020-2021. Maybe not as bad as you expected, but also not as good as you hoped. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com housekeeping getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task our next candid coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk saturday january 28th with richard rosso and danny ratliff register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the financial housekeeping candid coffee with ratliff and rosso register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show And welcome back to the show this morning. It's that time of the year again as those nasty Grinch Republicans are at it again. The debt ceiling showdown. And as is always the case, every time we get to this debt ceiling, we also get the revival of the $1 trillion platinum coin. If you haven't heard about this before, I'll tell you about it. But first of all, let's talk about the debt limit. Because I want to read to you an example. Many on the Democratic side of the aisle, you know, and, and those in kind of the, the media are constantly ranging the Republicans about the debt ceiling debates. 
right? We have this debt ceiling. It's like, and, and it's a ludicrous, right? It's a ludicrous invention that we have a debt ceiling. Is it really? The purpose of a debt ceiling is to put a limit on the spending, right? Let me just read to you this for a moment. And this is from a guy named Joe Wiesenthal, who's arguably one of the biggest idiots that write about financial information. Ah, the debt ceiling, he says. It's the ludicrous credit limit Congress has given itself, which could force us into default. Here's why it makes no sense. Imagine that you're a high-income earner living beyond your means, and your credit card company came to you offering to pay you to expand your line of credit, but you said no. You've made a resolution not to increase your line of credit, but no matter how attractive the offer, you're going to start living within your means. Ah, but you're still living beyond your old means, and you still have bills to pay. And when the credit card companies notice that you're no longer paying your bills, they'll jack up your interest rates. This is the worst fi personal financial plan ever. And that's what Republicans are saying. Hold on a second. I'm living beyond my means. I've got bills to pay. I'm not making enough money to live that way. And I've made a resolution to get myself straightened out, right? I'm going to start trying to live on a budget. How is that a bad financial plan? But see, this is what the media wants you to believe. The media wants you to believe that this credit debt ceiling limit is this ludicrous thing. We just need to raise it and be done with it. But no, see, we've been, oh, by the way, though, we've raised the debt ceiling since 1980, right? We've, and, and, and really, if you're not going to pay attention to the debt ceiling, then yeah, go ahead and get rid of it because it's just a, a place that we just have these arguments over now. Everybody's going to raise the debt ceiling. There is no risk. We won't raise the debt ceiling. We're not going to default on our debt. As I've explained before, in our budget, we have what's called mandatory spending. We have discretionary and non-discretionary spending in our budget. The, the stuff we have to pay, and we will pay it no matter what, is Social Security welfare payments, prescription drug benefits, and interest on the debt. And veterans. Those get paid. That's mandatory spending gets paid no matter what. Now, all the other stuff is non-mandatory. And that's where why every time we have these debt ceiling government shutdowns, we have to close the parks. But the interest on the debt always gets paid. Why? Because we have a printing press and we can print money. Is that a great thing? No, it's not a great thing. But the whole issue of default is ludicrous. We're not going to default on our debt. But this always brings us back to this whole idea of printing a trillion-dollar coin. This is this uh, arcane thing that is out there. It's an obscure law, and it authorizes platinum coins in the event of a potential default. So under the proposed scheme, and this has been around since the, the initial debt ceiling default debate government shutdown we had back in 2011, which 
derive the whole fiscal cliff problem and Ben Bernanke doing quantitative easing part three that drove the markets through the moon. Because guess what? The worst outcome didn't come, as everybody expected. But under this proposed scheme, the Treasury would mint a $1 trillion platinum coin and deposit it at the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve would then allow the Treasury to draw the money to pay the bills. But if we can do a trillion, why not 10? Why not 20? Why not 50? I mean, just print a $50 trillion coin and just solve the whole problem now and from here to the attorney. What's the problem with that? Sounds like a really simple solution. You think inflation was bad before? Start doing stuff like this. You, you know, there's a lot of people out there going, ah, you know, America's going to lose the reserve currency status. And, you know, you start doing stuff like this. You're going to very much erode the credibility of the stability of the U.S. currency. Worst possible things you can do. Janet Yellen, though, has already knocked this idea down. She says it's truly it truly is not by any means to be taken as a given that the Federal Reserve would actually do this. Again, what's the Fed's primary focus? Get inflation down. You think they're going to do something that intentionally inflates inflation at this point? Inflates inflation. And I think especially, she goes on to say, and I think especially with something that's a gimmick, she said on Sunday interview with the Wall Street Journal, the Fed is not required to accept it. There's no requirement on the part of the Fed. It's up to them what to do. And of course, this is over this whole idea of this whole debt ceiling. We're going to gear up for this big debt ceiling debate issue. But let's go back to the debt ceiling for a second. Why do we have a debt ceiling? The original intention of the debt ceiling was to say, look, when you get to this level of debt, you need to kind of think about cutting spending. This is your credit limit. You go to the, you go to the credit card company and you say, can I have a credit card, please, Mr. J.P. Morgan? He says, okay, great. I'll give you a credit card and here it's got a $5,000 limit on it. What happens when you get to your limit? Well, you go back to the bank and the bank says, well, you've been paying your credit card. Your income looks good. Your debt to income ratios look good. Okay, we'll bump your credit card up some. Because financially, you're in a pretty good position. So we'll bump your limit up. You've been a good payer. When you start missing bills and when you start getting your debt to income ratios out of whack, the bank says, well, maybe we won't raise your limit. Maybe you're good right where you are. And that's kind of the idea of the debt limit. The debt limit was to put a break on spending and say, look, when you get to this point, you can raise the debt limit. You know, if everything is good, right, the economy's strong, inflation's under control, uh, you're not running a trillion-dollar deficit, those type of things, raise your debt limit. But the purpose of the debt limit is exactly what the Democrats hate right now, which is to impose a debate on spending. It's not the evil empire of the GOP that's trying to crash the world. They're simply saying, hey, maybe let's have a conversation about our spending 
maybe do some spending cuts, maybe actually get back on a budget. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we're over $31 trillion in debt. We're only a $22 trillion-ish dollar economy. So, <laughs> you're running well over a 100% debt-to-GDP ratio. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You're living beyond your means. You have more debt than you have an income by a long stretch. And so is it such a disastrous thing that we have a debate on spending? I know. We won't get all these, you know, fundings for figuring out how Frisbees fly and those type of things. But... Maybe, just maybe, we can start making some progress in other areas. You know, it's interesting, uh, out of the 1.7, this is a good example of this, out of the $1.7 trillion spending bill that we just passed uh, the, the infrastructure plan, about 60% of that bill is going to roads, bridges, those type of things. As we found out, under the infrastructure spending bill under the Obama administration when he passed it. You know, President Obama was like, we need to pass this spending bill because we need to rebuild the infrastructure of America. We've got shovel-ready jobs. And so we passed that spending bill. And it was going to be great. Stock market ran up in all the areas that were supposed to benefit from all of these shovel-ready jobs. Unfortunately, what we found out was is that, A, those jobs aren't so shovel-ready, and B, they take so long to plan and execute that the impact on the overall economic environment is minimal. Because you just can't run out and just rebuild a bridge. It takes engineering and architecture and all these type of things. It takes a while to rebuild a bridge or to build a new one. And the impact is limited because once the bridge is built you still have the debt but you have no income to pay for it unless it's a toll bridge which we're not talking about building toll roads and toll bridges all across the country the negative feedback loop of debt remains the biggest problem the debt ceiling probably isn't the problem it might just be a solution be right back after a break Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Housekeeping. Getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task. Our next Candid Coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk. Saturday, January 28th with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The financial housekeeping Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
So I've told you uh, that my wife sells LNG. And uh, she's been in this big process to build bunkerings at ports along the Gulf Coast to fuel ships with LNG for delivery, export, etc. It's a very interesting thing. And one of the one of the interesting issues, of course, comes down to the whole climate change movement that, you know, in order for these companies like, uh, say, a cruise line, as an example, to comply with their ESG rankings and to comply with their carbon footprint commitments, those type of things, they will do things to show, and I put up quote fingers to do that, that they're complying. And so part of that is, is, you know, you can do things as an example, like buy clean LNG, which is LNG produced by pig poop. But it's called bio LNG. And they have whole farms that they just put pig poop underneath big tarps and make LNG, make, you know, gas that's bio. And then they stick it in the same pipeline with all the other gas. But, you know, you get a certificate that says you bought bio LNG, but there's no testing for this, right? Nobody comes in and samples the LNG that you have put into your ships to say you have a lower emission, but you have a certificate that says you bought bio LNG and you can sell that certificate to somebody else. Carbon credits is one of the biggest scams out there. Right. And uh, it's interesting. There was a, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church convinced commoners that they needed to buy indulgences to alleviate their sins. Right. So if you go if you go spend money you really don't have and you buy these indulgences, you can alleviate your sins. It was a great program. For the church, which made a fortune out of this, because <laughs> Uh, ironically, the indulgences that they had to buy to alleviate their sins were produced by the church. And this is kind of the same idea that's happening today. You know, just recently, uh, we've written articles on our website about ESG investing and the scam of ESG. And, of course, BlackRock has been a huge promoter of ESG, and, and they've been the overlords of the ESG investing program now for a while. And as we explained to you on the show, you pay four times as much to invest in ESG companies that have absolutely no impact on the economy or the environment, but makes you feel better. But you pay four times as much for the exact same performance as you get out of just buying an S&P index fund. And what's interesting is over the course of the last year, there's been quite a pushback on this. Texas is one that has now banned BlackRock from managing pension funds in Texas because of their ESG views and their impact on their negativity on the oil and gas sector. Not surprising Texas pushed back a bit. Florida did the same thing. And just recently, BlackRock had to take a knee to Florida and remove all their ESG requirements if they wanted to have any investments managed from Florida. And that's billions and billions and billions of dollars.
So, you know, as it comes down to, you know, the point is, is that virtue is great until you get to the bottom line. <laughs> Profits are the virtue. But anyway, this uh, carbon credits and carbon accounting, it's, a, it's really a huge scam. Let's say Brent has a company, and let me just give you an example. Brent has a company that produces an insane amount. I mean, he he is not, he is the old coal-fired energy plant. I mean, back in the day. <laughs> and he's throwing off a massive carbon footprint. But yet, with a little bit of creativity, all of a sudden, he has no carbon footprint at all. Well, how did he achieve that? Well, he bought the carbon credits from Tesla. So he can buy carbon credits to offset his CO2 production. So it makes him appear that he is more carbon friendly, even though he's really just polluting like a madman. And you see carbon accounting is actually creeping into things like Google Flights. If you go to make a flight on Google, you'll notice that it will tell you now how much CO2 that flight is emitting. Federal carbon tax is already a reality in, in Canada, and it's causing the price of food and other goods and services to go up. Why? Because when you put a tax on something, that's fine. And this is the whole fallacy, and I wish I had more time to get into this, but maybe, Brent, you can remind me tomorrow we'll talk about the fallacy of income tax on corporations. Um, but this is the fallacy that people have. It's like, okay, we're going to tax. We're going to create revenue by taxing your footprint. Okay, let's go back to, let's go back to Brent's terrible coal-fired coal plant that he's got. And they say, Brent, you, you produce too much CO2, so we're going to tax you on your CO2 output. Brent says, okay. Now, Brent is the only coal-fired electricity plant in his entire region. And people depend on electricity to keep their lights on, keep the refrigerators running, right? So Brent says, great, tax me. So... Tax comes in. Brent says, oh, there's the tax. Got it. My electricity rate is now going to go up by X percent per customer to cover that tax. You know, we saw the same thing with restaurants when they raised the minimum wage at restaurants, as an example. There was a hike passed on in prices to customers. The cost gets paid, ultimately, at the end of the day, by the consumer. So all these things sound great in theory, but if I can do things like buy carbon credits to offset my CO2, what am I achieving? All I'm doing is shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. At the same time, those taxes and impositions get passed down to the people that get hurt the most. You know, there's a lot of conversation about, oh, we need to tax the rich more. We need to do this, right? They don't pay enough in taxes, right? Well, the top 10% pay 90% of the taxes, but they have discretionary income. I know we all hate the, the rich people. 
The poor people, however, the ones that get impacted the most because they spend 100% of, actually, they spend more than 100% of their income. They mostly live in debt. And so when there's a price increase, it is them that get felt, or it is them that feel it the most because they don't have discretionary income to absorb that. And that's the problem with all these ideas, right? This is where it leads to higher inflation. It leads to lower quality of living, those type of things. And this is why you see such a demand now for, like we talked about this before, you know, I, I want socialism. I want fascism. I want communism because everybody just needs to have their fair share. We've talked about before, equity is not the same thing as equality. You don't want equality. You want equity. You know, in short, there's a growing push to implement this carbon credit scam worldwide, and that's not a coincidence because it's a wealth transfer mechanism that transfers money from the poor to those that own the companies or the governments and those that participate in those levels. And so when you think about, and look, you can, you can be on whatever side of the fence of the climate change argument you want. There is climate change, there isn't climate change. It doesn't matter to me. But what you should think about is, is who does it actually benefit? If you're in the camp that the rich are evil and that we need to tax, you know, all their money away, that's fine. Just realize that all of these programs to fix climate benefits the wealthy. It doesn't benefit the poor. You know, you look at countries that are poor. They don't give a rat's butt about climate change. They're just trying to make ends meet. China, India, you think poor people in India care about climate change? You think poor people in China living out in the, the rice fields care about climate change? They don't. They're just trying to make ends meet. I think people in South America that are just making ends meet, you think they care about climate change? They don't. This is why when you look at countries emitting CO2, China, India... <laughs> They're the biggest ones. China's making massive investments in coal-fired plants. They don't care about climate change. What they do care about is prosperity, making money. You figure it out. It's where carbon credits, their mechanism of seniorage, described to transfer wealth from you to the politically connected. That wraps up the show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest comments and more. Also, subscribe to this YouTube channel as well as our Before the Bell. So you get our three minutes Before the Bell commentary every morning. Keep you up to date and informed on the markets. Also, our daily market commentary and more. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.